Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In an experiment. Why is light so fast? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, could the review process for scientific papers be made more scientific? We also meet the scientists who accidentally hit upon an explanation for a whole family of genetic diseases. And we find out that the scientists whose job it is to classify and organise species... Their world is secretly in chaos. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 1st, 2017. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Some genetic diseases, including Huntington's disease, are caused when short DNA sequences are repeated too many times inside particular genes. How these repeated chunks actually cause disease has been a mystery. Kerry spoke to a pair of scientists who stumbled on an answer. It all started with the ice bucket challenge. Governor, I accept your challenge. Bring a bucket. A couple of years ago, videos of people chucking cold water over themselves went viral on social media. That was really cold. And that's when a lot of people found out about the disease they were raising money for, ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. One of those people was Anka Jane at the University of California, San Francisco. At the time, he was studying something seemingly unrelated, how bits of DNA and RNA stick together. Yes, so we were using DNA as a simple polymer to understand the process of self-assembly. He and his colleague Ron Vale were just using DNA as a toy, a building block, to see how it stuck to itself and formed structures. They'd made up some artificial sequences so they could watch them perform in test tubes. And then the ice bucket challenge happened, and Anker happened to look into what causes ALS. He found out that in some cases, the disease has a genetic cause. And the sequences that we were designing started looking very much like the sequences associated with the disease. GGGG followed by two Cs. This is Anker's colleague Ron Vale, also at the University of California, San Francisco. That sequence G, 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 followed by two Cs. is the one associated with ALS, 
but in other disorders, it's other strings of letters. Uh, so, for example, in Huntington disease, there's a simpler repeat of C-A-G. Most people have just a few repeats of such a sequence. C-A-G. It's only when the repeats reach beyond a critical number that the disease appears. In Huntington's disease, that's about 30 repeats or more. And here's the mystery. Why is there this critical threshold? Why does it seem that uh, individuals that just have a few don't get the disease, but after that threshold, uh, the individual becomes a great risk for the disease? Ron and Anker figured that their artificial sequences could have the answer. There could be some physical property of the repeated RNA strings that's linked to disease. There are two main theories for how the repeats cause disease. One says that too many repeats make too many proteins, and that messes up the function of the cell. The second theory says that maybe the RNA containing the repeats can't get out of the cell in order to make anything. In ordinary circumstances, the RNA will be made inside the nucleus of the cell and it's exported out and then translated. Uh, If the RNA contains these repeats, uh, um, it gets accumulated in the nucleus itself. Anker figured he could test with his artificial strings whether the RNA was sticking to itself and forming a clump. We synthesized an RNA which contains various number of these repeats, CAG repeated several times. And as control, we scrambled that sequence to keep the base content the same as the repeating sequence, Uh, but now the order of these nucleotides is scrambled. And what we saw is that the RNA, which which has the repeats, assembles into large clusters, which are tens of microns in size, whereas this scrambled RNA is completely soluble. This repeating sequences probably act as tiny Velcros, which allow the RNA to interact with one another. That seemed intriguing, but it was only happening in a test tube. So next, they developed a way of looking at the RNA behaving inside cells in real time. And we, in fact, saw that RNA are interacting and assembling into large puncta, which behave like liquids inside the cell. This is where they turned to physics and a concept called phase separation. Many people be aware of phase separation, how oil and water separate from one another, that there are certain physical properties that will cause molecules to... Uh, partition into different phases. So the whole problem started by asking, as Anker said, uh, do nucleic acids, can they themselves phase separate? They can. The RNA with repeats was forming liquid-like blobs, like the bubbles in a lava lamp, and that kept the RNA from being able to exit the cell. The final clincher would be if they could break up the clumps using something that dissolves the bonds between the RNA that make it into a liquidy jelly in the first place. They tried a drug called doxyrubicin, which is used in cancer chemotherapy to break DNA bonds. Surprisingly, it worked really well. Uh, However, doxyrubicin is fairly nonspecific, and now we are looking for more specific small molecules which can disrupt uh, base pairing specifically in CAG repeats or GGGGCC repeats. For Ron Vale, the finding feeds an idea that clumping could be a more general mechanism that causes disease. It's well known that in other disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, proteins can clump together. Now it seems the RNA is at it too. I would say that's kind of one of the new interesting ideas that the RNA itself may be the driver of aggregation, particularly in these repeat expansion disorders. Neurological disease 
in some cases may be a protein aggregation phenomena and what we are saying is that adding to that list there may be some kinds of neurological diseases that may have an RNA aggregation component as well. Ron Vale and before him Anchor Jane, both at the University of California, San Francisco. Their paper is online along with the news and views. Nature.com slash nature. The research highlights are around the corner, looking at big whales and mysterious antimatter. But before we get to that, we've got a story all about taxonomy, which is the classification of living things into various groups. So I've got a perfect prop to segue into that topic. You're holding a plastic in-tray. Charmony's plastic in-tray. A stolen plastic in-tray. Who it belongs to is not the point here. The point is the colour. Okay. Well, it looks like a kind of dark green, like a bottle green. No, no, it isn't. What do you mean, no, it isn't? It's blue. Well, I mean, I admit it's kind of on a on the bluey side of green, but I mean, I'd definitely say it's definitively on the green side of the blue-green line. Sharmini also incorrectly thought that, which is why this piece of plastic is the perfect representation of a key problem in taxonomy. How do you classify things into neat groups when the lines are so blurry? Here's Shamini Bundell to tell us a bit more. It's definitely green. From bird watchers to bug collectors, biologists are often thought of as obsessed with collecting, organising and classifying things. In other words, taxonomy. One of the basic units of taxonomy is the species. But as a comment in this week's Nature reveals, taxonomists don't necessarily agree on what that actually means. I called up Les Christidis of Southern Cross University in Australia and asked him, what is a species? That's one of the fundamental questions. I mean, Charles Darwin wrote on on the origin of species, but he never actually answered the question. The problem is, speciation is a dynamic process. We're looking at a continuum, and we're just trying to put a little square frame about it for each different uh, group of organisms, saying this is a species and this isn't. And how do people um, try and define a species? What are some of the criteria that we use? The traditional one was... Species were sort of self-contained units. So if they uh, interbred, the hybrids would be infertile or have some other deformities in that. So that was called the biological species concept. So a horse and a donkey could mate and have a mule offspring, but, but they are then infertile and they can't become a whole new species and sort of merge horses and donkeys back together again. Exactly. That's, that's the perfect example. But there are numerous cases of where so-called species will hybridise and form not only fertile hybrids but have hybrid zones and then create a continuum in that. Cases like the the hooded and the carrion crow in in Europe, quite distinct, but there's broad hybrid zones between them. So the break between species is sometimes uh, leaky. There's inconsistencies also, isn't there, in the way that different animals and types of animals are divided? That's right. And we've also got the issue of uh, different species concepts. So in mammalogy, a classic case is the tiger, which is recognised as a single species. And at the moment, there's five or six subspecies within the tiger. Under a phylogenetic species uh, philosophy, subspecies are not recognised. So we would suddenly have five or six species of tiger and why does that matter? Isn't, isn't this just semantics? Well, it, it, it makes a big difference then because uh, you've suddenly got uh, conservation efforts 
trying to save six species of tigers. It's okay to say we need to save the tiger, which everyone would agree, and if possible, let's try and maintain all the subspecies. But suddenly, if we're saying that the six now species of tiger are also in the same category as the snow leopard and the cheetah and the lion, you've suddenly increased the amount of funding required for conservation and in a, in a real sense, does it mean that if we save two species of tiger and lost a cheetah, we're, we're still okay because we've only lost one species? And is there also a problem with, um, you know, tigers are pretty cool. We're probably going to study them in, in great detail and maybe divide them up more than we would divide up less glamorous animals? Uh, absolutely. The, the more something is studied, the more differences you'll pick up. And so you can actually start dividing and dividing and calling each one of those things as a species. Now, in the past, it wasn't such a big problem, but now we have uh, regulations and treaties. So governments then have to change the number of threatened species in their legislation. They need to change legislation so that different forms are covered. You can imagine the amount of uh, legal and legislative changes that are required by simple taxonomic decision based on a philosophy. So this is real-world implications for governments and laws and, I guess, individuals and their livelihoods as well. Absolutely. And the, I know that you know, taxonomers you know, love their science and it is a really good and important science, but I think they devalue it sometimes by just saying every taxonomist can come up with whatever structure they want and we just let people decide on that. Taxonomists should take responsibility for it and saying their decisions have real-world implications and maybe some form of governance and parameters need to be put into place. And taxonomists are the best people to do it. And yes, there's different viewpoints in that, but the government and the public expect us to do our job properly. So there's never going to be a correct answer, but let's at least ha assign an organisation to make the sort of final ruling? Well, the International Union of Biological Sciences, that would be our suggestion. A single you know, group that says this is the official listing of, uh, say, mammals, or this is the official listing of birds, and any additions or subtractions are vetted. Do you think they'll want to take on this quite mammoth task? Uh, <laughs> it would be a courageous decision to, to take it on, but it's something that needs to be done. There's the, the two challenges. One is the, is the real one on you know, evolution, and we're trying to pigeonhole a continuum into small single frames at, at, at this moment in time, which is always going to be difficult. But the other one is, is the easily solvable one where you've got different philosophies. If you're saying, well, you know, just pick one. That was Les Christidis on the phone from New South Wales. The comment piece that he authored with Stephen T. Garnett is available at nature.com forward slash news. Coming up, one way to make peer review more scientific. That's after the research highlights. And this week, a special shout-out to our awesome highlights editor and narrator, Corrie Locke, who, after a decade or so at Nature, in charge of the research highlights section, is moving onwards to an awesome new opening. Looks like this is going to be my last recording for you guys for the highlights segment for the podcast. Just wanted to say thanks for letting me contribute. Here we go. For every particle of matter, there's a corresponding antimatter particle. Electrons are constantly running into their antimatter counterparts, called positrons, 
but how the positrons are generated has been a mystery. Researchers now say that most of the antimatter in the space between stars could be created in the explosions of white dwarfs, which are the inert remnants of sun-like stars. According to the researchers' calculations, when white dwarfs between 3 and 6 billion years old merge, the resulting supernovae can generate radioactive titanium-44, which then emits positrons at the observed rate. You can find out more from the journal Nature Astronomy. Blue whales are the biggest animals on Earth. How did they and other baleen whales get so big? Researchers used a model to study the evolution of the mammals using data on body length for living and extinct whales. They found that baleen whales that are more than 10 meters long diversified about 3 million years ago. This was a time when shifting winds started to draw colder water, brimming with prey, up from the deep ocean. Larger whales were probably more efficient at moving between and feeding on isolated patches of food than their smaller counterparts. Find the study in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. The wonderful Curry Lock there. Thanks again, Curry. We will miss you. You can find the highlights each week at nature.com forward slash news. Sending off your paper for peer review may spark off a conflicting set of emotions. On the one hand, your precious manuscript is now in the hands of trusted experts, <sighs> deemed the best minds in the land to pick over your work and offer constructive, objective comment. <laughs> On the other hand, they are human. What if your reviewers read your paper and think, Huh, I just don't get it. Or worse, Ugh, a paper for my competitor? After all, these decisions can shape careers. Scientists have been arguing about peer review ever since there's been peer review. And there's been peer review in some form for a couple of hundred years. Usually it's just a handful of scientists asked for their opinion. But how would you feel if this handful became a crowd and a hundred people were asked to pick over your work? Would that be an order of magnitude messier? Quite the opposite, according to Benjamin List. He's the editor-in-chief of a chemistry journal called Sinlet and he made his case for intelligent crowd reviewing to reporter Jeff Marsh. What do you see as the problem then with the current peer review system? First of all, often peer reviewing just takes a long time. Often our referees also are busy. They're just travelling the world and they do other things. And then once it comes to somebody refereeing it, he might be biased or he makes mistakes. It's weird if you think about it. In order to be published, we have this sort of weak bottleneck where just less than a handful of people propose their personal opinions. It's totally not a scientific method, I would say, in how we handle scientific manuscripts. So let's hear then about your new proposition, which you've called intelligent crowd reviewing. Our idea is not that we just put it online and everybody can comment on a manuscript, but we have a selected group of referees and it's a larger number, much larger number than the two to four referees that is normally used. When you have a biased referee now, this will immediately be corrected. Imagine you have 100 referees. One referee is, is your buddy and he writes, this is an outstanding manuscript. The author should win the Nobel Prize. Then there are 99 other people who are much more objective and they say, wait a minute, you know, there, there's a few mistakes here and, and so on. This is something, as far as I know, which has not been really utilized in the past, at least in a convenient fashion. 
Now, as a scientist, Benjamin, obviously you're not expecting us all to just take your word on this system. You set up a framework, or, or actually your undergraduate student, Dennis Hoofler, set up a lot of this framework to actually test your theory, and I believe he joins us now. Hello, Jeff. Let's briefly talk numbers then. Traditional peer review, somewhere between two and four expert referees. How many did you recruit then to constitute your intelligent crowd? Our first test, we started with a crowd of 60. And these scientists were of a very diverse background. So we had postdocs, junior professors, PhD students, people which we can trust. How did they interact with the manuscripts? So in the center of the platform, we uploaded a manuscript and they were actually able to highlight parts of the manuscript of which they could comment on. And everybody of the crowd is then able to see which parts has been commented and everything is happening completely anonymously so that the people can actually be quite frank with each other. How did you test the relative merits of this system versus the old? So we took 10 manuscripts and um, all of them were traditionally um, peer-reviewed, so by selecting two to four people. In parallel, with the consent of the authors, we did our crowd-reviewing experiments. And so back to Benjamin then, let's hear about your... First of all, what did the authors think of this new process? They were all delighted how fast the refereeing process went but also about the quality. In the majority of these cases that were ultimately accepted, the authors could massively improve uh, upon the original submission. But isn't it a fair concern that perhaps authors might be a bit worried about sending out unpublished, exciting new findings to, you know, maybe a hundred anonymous fellow scientists? You should be aware, though, that this is, of course, always a problem with any type of peer reviewing. But it definitely sort of amplifies that risk a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it amplifies it, and that's, that's of course, in principle a problem. But if we ever have one person misbehaving in the slightest way, he's out of the crowd. The other aspect I'd like to point out is that the refereeing process is so fast that it's done in two days. Nobody can take your idea in and, and then quickly do it in his lab and publish a paper independently. What about the workload then on peer reviewers? Because that's what we started off by saying. It is an unpaid, potentially very laborious job. Now, if they're part of this crowd, presumably that means they get called upon much more often. This is indeed the case. However, and here comes a very important point, you only comment when you're inclined to comment. All the burden that rests on your shoulders that you are responsible now if this work gets published or not is shared by a hundred other people. Okay, and if anyone were doubting your commitment to this new system, I should point out that your journals are now transitioning over to a fully intelligent crowd-based reviewing system. That's the plan at least. We're not yet there, but this is happening right now and I would expect maybe by the end of this year or let's say in one year um, we're all using crowd reviewing. When you say we're all, are you talking about... Like my, my associate editors and I. The whole world will be... Well, no, no, no. <laughs> well, but on that point, I mean, what do you expect for this new system? Well, the bottom line is, in our experiments, we found it simply works. And it works really, really well. It's much faster than traditional peer reviewing, but the quality doesn't suffer at the same time. So we get, in fact, we get more information. And I think there's a great potential not only uh, for synthetic chemistry, but, you know, why not in other fields? That was Benjamin List, joined by his student and editorial assistant at Sinlet, Dennis Herfler. They were speaking to Jeff Marsh.
Well, intelligent peers, what's your judgment on Benjamin's proposal? Maybe you work in a controversial field where a hundred experts would implode the internet if they were all given a say. Or maybe you work in a field where there aren't even a hundred experts to ask. We'd like to know the Nature Podcast crowd's thoughts on the matter, so let us know on Twitter. We are at Nature Podcast. Time now for this week's news chat and Lizzie Gibney's pop down to the studio. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Adam. Now, one of my favourite things on my newsfeed this week were some pictures of Jupiter that have been taken quite recently, right? Yes, so this is NASA's Juno spacecraft. So it arrived there last year and it's been doing these elliptical orbits and finding out some fascinating things about Jupiter. I think we maybe discussed on Backchat once that space missions are the perfect diversions from some of the things that are happening on this world. And these pictures are a perfect example of that. But presumably they're not just beautiful little baubles to distract us from what's going on here. That's very true. And actually what's interesting is that a lot of the um, most interesting findings are not about these swirling clouds that we see on the surface, but the very fact that Juno can see beneath the clouds. It uses a microwave instrument, so we're actually finding out what's going on beneath the clouds and then even what the core of the planet seems to be like. Are there any surprises so far or is it kind of just confirming how we thought Jupiter was? It just seems like every mission like this, you go there and actually it's bigger, crazier, weirder than than you thought. So, um, yeah, so we found that instead of uh, ammonia being diffused throughout the atmosphere, there's actually only a little bit of ammonia in most places, but then these big plumes that are coming out around the equator. We've also found out a bit more about its magnetic field. It's a very powerful magnetic field and that it's, it's a lot patchier than people thought thought, which may suggest that something is going on inside the planet, some kind of churning. Um, and then something else, which is was a little strange to do with the magnetic field, was the way uh, that it manifests itself at the, at the poles, so where it streams out of the planet. Instead of coming out in even streams, there are lots of it's like having lots of different wires sticking out, um, which would make for a really beautiful aurora, I think. Uh, the kind of northern and southern lights on Jupiter would be pretty spectacular. Quite difficult to, to see them, I suppose. Yes, I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to see them. It might have to remain uh, in people's imaginations. Now, this definitely isn't it for Juno, right? It's been there a little while, but there's still some way to go. Absolutely. These are just the preliminary findings. So this is um, the very first few bits and bobs that we've been able to, to put together. And how, how long is it sticking around? Juno is going to be uh, staying around Jupiter until next year. I'm not sure of the exact date, but it's going to then burn up in, uh, in the atmosphere to, to make sure that the spacecraft doesn't um, contaminate Europa, which is, um, which is another top, which is one of the moons of Jupiter and where there is a tiny chance that, that even life may exist. Is it taking any measurements on its way into Jupiter? Absolutely. So at the moment it's doing these these elliptical sweeps around and then when it comes to the end of its life, the, the craft will also be monitoring the atmosphere as it dives into it. So we'll get some good close-ups then as well. Let's move on to our second story, which is... And usually something even bigger than Jupiter. It's regarding neutron stars. Well, it's certainly more massive. Oh, it's a lot smaller room. than mm, Jupiter. Okay. So, I stand corrected. <laughs> so neutron stars are just... They just blow your mind in terms of trying to imagine them. So they are smaller than a city. They're about 10, 12 kilometres in radius. But they've got more mass than the sun. So it's just a phenomenal amount of matter crammed into a tiny space. They're on that border, on the threshold, before becoming uh, you know, any, any, any more massive and there'd be a black hole. But they're not quite. Matter is still holding it together at this point. And now their efforts to actually 
see what's going on inside a neutron star? Exactly. So the thing with this kind of matter is we can't, we have no chance of creating it on Earth. So you can try and have very, very high pressure, high density environments when you collide particles, but that's so short lived. And then it's also very, very hot. Whereas inside one of these stars, it's very stable and actually relatively cool. So we just have no way of knowing what's happening in their core unless we try and do these measurements. So, so this is a mission called NICER, another NASA mission. It's a relatively cheap one as well at a, at a mere $55 million. A bargain. <laughs> Absolutely. For what we're getting out of it, it probably will be. And what it's going to be able to do is measure both the, the mass to radius ratio of the stars and also through separate means uh, measure the mass. And in that way, you can tell between lots of the different possible theories about how matter might be arranged within the neutron star's core. How different are these theories from each other? They're pretty different. So one end of the scale, you've got the idea that actually, by the time you get down to the core, you still have neutrons as, as we know them, you know, so they're, they're made up of quarks, but they're all confined in set particles. Um, you can imagine them like, like marbles, and you might have a few protons as well, and they'll just be packed together, but packed in with a, a pressure much higher than within uh, atomic nuclei. So it'd be like one giant atomic nucleus, in fact. That's, so that would create quite a, a stiff core that would be able to to kind of withstand the, the huge um, force of gravity pushing in on it. Um, and then you've also got the idea that perhaps rather than being confined still in these particles, the neutrons break down into their constituent quarks and then you've got a kind of soup um, and it would be probably smaller and it would be softer. And, uh, and you'd be able to tell the difference between those by knowing what this mass to radius ratio is. How is it measuring this mass to radius ratio in the first place? So, so it's actually, we're looking at pulsars in particular. It's a type of neutron star um, that has these these um, kind of, you can imagine it like a, a lighthouse beam that sweeps pa- past Earth. And some of these, they, they, they rotate at different speeds, but it can be hundreds or thousands of times every second. When they do that, um, because the star has such an enormous gravitational field, some of that light will get bent back. So even when it's facing, this beam is facing away from us, some of it will come back to Earth. So the fluctuation in how the light changes as it sweeps past us tells us about that gravitational field around the star. And from that, combined with it's actually doing a huge number of different bits of information it's trying to glean from this light spectrum. Um, But from all of those together, we can figure out what this ratio is. But in terms of how it actually watches and measures this light, how are we doing it and why can't we just do that before? So this is uh, is a little observatory that will go on the International Space Station um, and it's launching on the 1st of June. Uh, It's not looking at the light with any great resolution in terms of space, but it has incredible time resolution. So it can... It can detect the arrival time of each photon uh, with an accuracy of about 100 nanoseconds. Um, So it's it's an incredible piece of timing equipment. It's an amazing experiment. It never occurred to me that you'd look inside a neutron star. Exactly. And what is pretty cool is the fact that we're learning about what's happening right in the centre just by the fact that by knowing these seemingly quite simple measurements, um, that allows us to tell the difference between these quite wildly different theories about what's going on at the actual level of, of neutrons and even quarks. Thank you, Lizzie. Learn more about neutron stars at nature.com forward slash news, where you'll also find the piece and pictures of Jupiter. That's all we have time for this week. In the meantime, a new sci-fi short just landed, and you can find it on the podcast feed and on our website, nature.com slash nature slash podcast right now. I'm Carrie Smith. 
and I'm Adam Levy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.